0: Assalamu and welcome to another episode of Network Reorient. Today we have with us Professor Bernard Freeman, who will be discussing his latest book, Possessed by the Right Hand. Today we are lucky enough to be joined by Professor of Law at Seton Hall University, Professor Bernard Freeman. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bernard. How are you today?
1: You're welcome, alhamdulillah. I'm doing fine. I'm doing very well, alhamdulillah.
0: That's great to hear. Now, Professor Freeman has worked extensively on Islamic law and slavery, contributing a number of essays and articles on the topic. Most recently, uh, Professor Bernard has published uh, a book entitled Possessed by the Right Hand, The Problem of Slavery in Islamic Law and Muslim Cultures. So to begin with, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, Professor Freeman, and tell us a little bit about yourself and speak about what led to your interest in this topic?
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> Salamu alaikum, wa alaikum salam to everyone out there on uh, listening. I am a uh, law professor, a practicing lawyer, and law teacher. Uh, I've taught at Seton Hall uh, for about 40 years, and uh, I'm a Muslim. I've been a Muslim since. I was a young adult, uh, and in 1985, I traveled, uh, after having gotten an interest in Islamic law, I traveled to East Africa, and uh, while in East Africa, I took a trip to a place called Zanzibar, which is an island off the coast of uh, Tanzania. And I discovered that there's a rich and very uh, deep history of slavery and slave trading in Zanzibar, and that during the time after the death of the Prophet Muhammad up until recent times, uh, Zanzibar had been a major uh, entrepot for slavery and slave trading conducted by Muslims. Now, I when I studied Islam, I, and my teachers told me, and I internalized, and I'm an African American Muslim, which is so, the topic of slavery is just important uh, in terms of uh, the African American culture as well. Uh, I was told that, well, uh, you know, Islam took this very, um, um, almost an anti-slavery or uh, emancipatory or egalitarian approach to slavery. And then when I went to Zanzibar, I discovered that the actual facts in terms of the history of slavery and slave trading, especially in the Indian Ocean world, um, did not support that idea. So when I came back to the US, the second thing that happened was I taught a class uh, just as a guest lecturer in Islamic ethics. And one of the students asked me about Islam's position on slavery And um, at that time, there was a lot of concern about what was going on in Sudan. Uh, It's died down to some extent, but the raiding of the Janjaweed and the oppression of the people from Darfur and um, much uh, talk of uh, people being enslaved and transported to other parts of the Middle East from that area of Sudan got me interested in doing research on this topic. And um, I wrote an article. My first article was in the Harvard Human Rights uh, lo- uh, Law Journal on the uh, question of consensus, whether there was a consensus. I asked the question as to whether there's a consensus of uh, opinions from scholars on the question of slavery. And uh, and I uh, discussed that in that article. And it's really that article, the publication of that article, which led ultimately to this book, um, sure. The book, the book uh, does a, it's really the first, as far as I can tell, comprehensive legal history of slavery sure. and slave trading in the Indian Ocean world. And, um, and then at the end of the book, I consider uh, the problem of slavery in terms of what's happened lately, with, uh, sure. in terms of ISIS and Boko Haram and Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines and then I propose uh, toward the end of the book a uh, a means by which um, uh, slavery could be abolished under Islamic law, uh, and that's primarily because uh, uh, one of the arguments in the book is that the effort by the West to accomplish abolition of slavery in the Muslim world has been a failure. Sure,
0: so let's um, let's dive right in. Then that's uh, firstly. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, let's dive right into the arguments in the book because I find it—I uh, found your book very, very interesting. Um, your first chapters explore different forms of slavery pre-Islam and in the early period of Islam. And you make the argument that the Qur'an and early Muslims, uh, they limited the avenues for the ingress of slaves. Now, could you elaborate a little bit on this and perhaps explain what slavery looked like? in the early uh, period of Islam?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. Uh, most of the scholarship on slavery, pre-Islamic slavery, has focused on Rome and Greece. And the yeah. Roman and Greek slavery, there were important influences. But in my first chapter, I uh, detailed the fact that there were also influences on how the Muslims came to practice slavery that came from other areas of that part of the world from uh, Ethiopia, which was then called Abyssinia, as well as from uh, Iran and India, and also from um, Southeast Asia, uh, to a lesser extent, and Mesopotamia, which is uh, also uh, what is uh, today modern-day Iraq. So the practice of slavery, when the Prophet Muhammad first got his revelations, was really quite a... um, um, horrific kind of thing, uh, in that there were, uh, I think in my book, I denominate about 12 or 14 different ways that one could become a slave. And then the argument made in the second chapter is that the revelations of the Quran and the statements of the Prophet Muhammad, which are now described as Hadith, eliminated all of those means of ingress, for example, uh, being um, uh, a foundling, a child who is uh, unknown, his, uh, his uh, uh, heritage is unknown, could be enslaved, or enslavement of someone for payment of a debt, or uh, the selling of a wife or child into slavery because someone cannot afford to support them, or even selling yourself into slavery. All of those means of ingress into slavery were eliminated By the Quran and the interpretation of the Quran by the Prophet Muhammad and and the early Muslims around the Prophet Muhammad and after his death, and uh, under the Islamic law as it developed, very early in the Islamic uh, uh, history, there were only two means of ingress that were permitted: either capture in war, and of course, war was narrowly defined by the Quran. It must be a jihad. Or religious war, and or uh, birth from two lawfully enslaved parents. Both of your parents had to be enslaved in order for the child to be enslaved. If either of the parents were free, then the slave was free. Now, some of that's borrowed, actually, from some of the uh, Sassanian uh, rules that existed uh, it, uh, prior to Islam, it's, the Sassanians had similar rules in terms of birth, um, but the, all the other means of ingress into slavery, uh, except for those two means, were abolished. So uh, then, especially with the uh, actions and the policies established by the Caliph Omar, uh, there was quite a bit of um, uh, an emphasis, a shift in emphasis to emancipation as the rule rather than enslavement. And so the Islamic approach to slavery was what I described as an emancipatory approach Um, uh, and based upon the idea of taqwa, that the person who possesses taqwa, which is fear of God, emancipates slaves. That's one of the duties of the God-fearing person to emancipate slaves And I spend quite a bit of time in my second chapter on that.
0: That's really, really interesting and um, fascinating. Um, I'd like to move on in the book to the chapter in which you speak about the Mamluk and Ghulam phenomenon. And you also use the fantastic term uh, slave sultans. Now, you cover the vastly different roles occupied by enslaved peoples in the Muslim world. Um, you mentioned that there were slaves on the plantation, domestic servants, but also military leaders and even rulers of the Muslim world at certain points. Now, to modern ears, the term slave sultan will sound almost like a, a square circle. That's to say it sounds impossible. How can a former slave become the ruler of the land? Uh, could you elaborate on this a little and explain why it was the case that pa- enslaved peoples were able to occupy such vastly different spaces in Muslim societies?
1: Well, that is a, it's still even to me somewhat of a mystery, and I think it's mystified scholars over the years, and it's been ignored by uh, even scholars of slavery, The what I call the Mamluk gulam, uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, a gulam uh, phenomenon, um, uh, there was a, a historian named David Ayalan who first did much work on this, and he's passed away now, and I try to try to take up uh, some of the work that where he left off. One of the things about the conception of slavery in the Islamic approach is the idea of loyalty, that Uh, There is a relationship of loyalty between the enslaved person and the owner of the slave. And then what happened in Iraq during the Abbasid Caliphate, um, one of the caliphs uh, determined that he could not rely on the loyalty of the typical kinds of slaves that he and his uh, uh, lieutenants owned. And so they began to import in large numbers non-Muslim at that time, non-Muslim Turkish um, uh, soldiers from the steppes of Asia. And they developed a means by which these soldiers Mm -hmm. could um, actually um, take over the military and to some extent also the economic uh, activities of the state, of the Islamic State at that time. And so what happened, which is this did not happen in, in many other uh, circumstances, what happened was the slave, it sort of made true Hegel's observation that oftentimes the slave becomes r- the real master in a, mm. in a relationship. I call these kinds of slaves the sultanic, um, or you could call them mamluk or gulami uh, slaves, where they actually, because of their knowledge, because of their training, and because of their uh, ability to move throughout the uh, state, they actually uh, uh, took over the running of the state, even though they were technically slaves or uh, recently emancipated slaves uh, with a duty of loyalty to their owner. But really, it was the slave that uh, became the sultan, Oftentimes, in actual fact, the emancipated slave or an enslaved person would be the actual uh, commander of the military and the head of state. I'm not the first person to use that term, first historian to use that term, slave sultans. I actually owe it to a historian who's at the University of Wisconsin who wrote on this uh, 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 practice in India and his name is Andre Wink. But uh, the practice was beyond just what happened in India. Uh, the Egyptian state for 300 years was run by the Mamluks, the Mamluk. And it's probably, in terms of Egyptian history, one of the greatest um, aspects of Egyptian history is, is uh, full of good um, and fascinating uh, uh, circumstances. But one of the most important in terms of Egyptian history, especially early modern and modern Egyptian history, is the Mamluk phenomenon. Anyone who's been to Cairo and sees the architecture and the um, communities and the uh, hospitals and schools for orphans and uh, schools for the blind and all the other kinds of things that the Mamluks did, um, it's just an amazing uh, part of history. And so I incorporate that, I do a taxonomy of slavery in the Islamic approach to it, and what's been ignored and what I try to incorporate in my taxonomy is the Mamluk phenomenon or the Ghulam phenomenon, the Gulam in the Indian subcontinent and Eurasia, and what that means in terms of slavery. My argument is that it really is a different conception of slavery <laughs> than sure. what you find in many other uh, uh, societies, completely different conception.
0: And that, I mean, that's really, really interesting. And it makes me wonder to what extent um, it's difficult to find common features in the experiences of slaves in the Muslim world. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is slavery meant different things to different people in different situations. Clearly the, the slave on the plantation didn't have the same experiences as the slave sultan, for example. Would that be a fair statement?
1: Yes, that's true. Now, I don't want to, I'm glad you brought brought that up. I don't want to minimize sure. or to devalue the fact that there were many, many, many people um, who suffered in sure. slavery uh, and who lived very degraded and um, uh, terrible and horrific Uh, lives, uh, and uh, the slave trade in the Indian Ocean, I would say, is um, um, what is ignored, is that it actually lasted longer and transported more people across the ocean than the the transatlantic experience. Okay. Um, And so you have more people in slavery and more people actually um, in uh, horrible circumstances in the Muslim world than um, in the uh, transatlantic war, although the transatlantic slave trade was a horrific thing. um, So you have, uh, so for example, in transatlantic uh, slavery, people talk about middle passages, the middle passage, which is the horrific transportation across the Atlantic Ocean. Many people died being thrown over the side. Um, In the Islamic history, there are about six or seven middle passages, the Sahara Desert, Uh, the Silk Road, uh, transportation from Southeast Asia into India, transportation from East Africa to India. Uh, So you have a good number of horrific uh, transit circumstances that um, when people teach slavery in Islamic education, they ignore, the teachers often ignore uh, that history which is one of the points I make in my book, that it should yeah, not be this is a,
0: Yeah, sure. This is a really fascinating topic. And Professor Freeman. Uh, one of the main arguments of your book, um, in, sorry, in one of the main arguments of your book, uh, you state that uh, ISIS, Boko Haram, and groups like this have uh, revived the slave trade. And in order to challenge this, Muslims need to uh, purport and present um, a reading of their tradition that exemplifies the egalitarian intention of the Islamic tradition. Would that would that be a fair reading yes, of the fair. word?
1: It's not just egalitarian, but also emancipatory. Sure. Um, okay. a, uh, it's actually a, my argument is that the Islamic legal tradition prioritizes the effort based on a conception of what God would want, the effort to eliminate and immense emanci- eliminate slaves and emancipate eliminate slavery and emancipate slaves, that that's a priority in the Islamic tradition. Um, and that's one of my main arguments um, and that that priority has been ignored uh, based on the history, And also that uh, these groups, um, uh, there are about three or four of them now, uh, they're mostly Salafist groups. They also uh, de-emphasize or want Muslims to to continue to ignore that priority.
0: Sure. Okay, Mm -hmm. I think there are a great number of people who would agree with your argument. Um, but just to play devil's advocate for a moment, um, it could be argued that the general consensus of Muslims is that these groups and their actions are un and problematic and virtually all Muslim nations and communities reject them. But ISIS and Boko Haram, they don't really very much care what you, I and every Muslim scholar out there has already said. So would it necessarily dissuade them and stop them from doing the things they do? Um, if there were different readings that were pushed towards them, if, if that makes sense? Well,
1: if they are sincere in terms of their uh, understanding and interpretation of the texts and of the, of the, uh, the norms and the texts that uh, they uh, purport to be following, then they should engage uh, Muslims in a dialogue on those texts, on the meaning of those texts, and the, um, and the uh, uh, implications and application of those texts in modern life. Now, sure. one, thing they, one thing that they want to ignore is the fact that there's been a 300-year history of action against slavery in world history. Mm-hmm. that, uh, that uh, Muslims are not the only ones who have had problems with slavery in, in their history. And so the, uh, those groups have to acknowledge, at least have a dialogue with other Muslims, about um, how those texts should be applied in, uh, in our modern and actually postmodern uh, social uh, circumstances. So if you look, for example, especially at the actions of ISIS, it's not really the slavery that they sought to introduce and in the slave trading. It's not the slavery and slave trading that was done during the Abbasid Caliphate. It's mostly just what I would describe as uh, uh, modern-day human trafficking, focusing on girls, focusing on concubinage, focusing on sex trafficking, And so all the other, for example, they don't um, have uh, any talk or discussion of uh, the Mamluk phenomenon or any of the other aspects of slavery that I discuss in my book. They're very narrow, and it's only a slavery for purposes of advancing empire, rather than I think what the text really intended. It seems that the text, the argument of my book is that the text intended that this pre-Islamic approach to slavery that uh, the Muslims came into when they got the revelation of the Quran should be eliminated, that that should be eliminated. And that if Muslims followed the examples that are given in their texts and in, uh, in our texts and in the, uh, the norms that are laid down by the texts, slavery would disappear. That's, a good uh, Muslim emancipates slaves, a good Muslim doesn't uh, create more slavery.
0: Yeah that's a really compelling argument professor freeman and my final question isn't yes. so much about about the book specifically but just working on this these types of issues more generally uh these types of sensitive issues and that's um i guess the question is how do you negotiate working on sensitive issues regarding questions of islam and reform Um, in a time in which Islamophobia and the fear and suspicion of Muslims is rising exponentially. Is this a a tension that you've ever felt when you've been doing this type of work?
1: Yes, that's a very good question. Um, I I think about it quite a bit. First of all, it's sometimes dangerous work, um, not just because of Islamophobia, but even from uh, extremist Muslims. You have to contend with the fact that people uh, sometimes want to take violent action. So you have to confront that idea. But the greater good, in my view, which is um, the combating um, human suffering and combating uh, the degradation of human beings and the, uh, uh, the de- diminution, especially of women and children um is worth that struggle i agree with your observation that it's a struggle and sometimes a dangerous struggle but i'm not the first one to have done that and others also would do that have done that and will continue to do it
0: thank you Uh, thank you so much for sharing and thank you so much for joining us it was an absolute pleasure speaking to you professor bernard freeman
1: and a pleasure for me too Uh, Assalamu Alaikum.
0: Wa Alaikum assalam. This has been another episode of Network Reorient. Thank you for tuning in. Please have listened to some of our other episodes and leave a rating.